Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, Episode 9, Giving a Name to the Remains, Part 4. So today we're going to uh, talk about Charles Carey Cobbler and Marty Ray Jones, both age 17. They um, were roommates. They had lived together on and off for about two years. The boys, their parents said, were very good friends, like brothers. They had an apartment at 304 West 24th in Houston. Marty worked as a flower delivery uh, man, but had recently got a job as an apprentice roofer. On July 25th, 1973, Marty had dinner with his mom before he returned to his and Charles' apartment. They were last heard from around the 25th, but on July 26th, their fathers, so both fathers independently received phone calls from a man with a deep voice claiming that the boys were in trouble and needed a thousand dollars. Marty's father felt that the boys were involved with drugs. Marty's parents had divorced and his mother had moved out of the area. When Marty's mother heard that her son was missing and needed in need of money, she actually cashed out a uh, certificate some type of like maybe a bond Mm -hmm. or a stock certificate or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And she came to Houston with the thousand dollars prepared to find her son and help. Charlie's mom said that she believed her son actually knew Henley through Rhonda. And if you're not familiar with Rhonda to familiarize you again she is the female victim who is in the house the day that coral is shot and killed um so she said that um rhonda was a sexy beautiful girl who looked 18 um even though she was only 15. she said she used to sit on henley's porch talking to him and other boys and so neighborhood boys would kind of come over there to meet and talk with her. And that's how she believes that her son actually met Henley. Charles was actually married to a young woman named Deborah. He worked at a nickel plating factory. I guess I hadn't said that earlier, but anyway, that's what he did for a living. Um, His young wife and him had separated about two weeks before he went missing. And so that's why they're kind of Marty and him are moving into a new apartment. Even though they had separated, she said that uh, her and Charles were trying to work things out and reconcile, and she believed that they would have gotten back together. 
Deborah said she had never seen uh, either Brooks or Henley around um, her husband or her or their apartment. She also um, said that she didn't know uh, Dean Coral. So on the day that the bodies are discovered in the boat shed, Marty Jones' cousin was actually a detective working for the uh, sheriff's department there in uh, Pasadena. And he was on scene at the boat shed that day. When, was Marty in the boat shed? Uh, I believe Marty is in the boat shed. Uh -huh. Yeah, Marty was in the boat shed. I don't think he knew that. And, but with Marty being missing, he certainly was going back to the family and saying, this is a possibility that we might find him there. Uh -huh. So, um, but I can, I can imagine how hard that is then finding out later that yes, that was your cousin who was identified there. Um, in Henley's confession, he actually claims that I shot Charles in the head with Dean's pistol and then Dean and I choked, um, Marty Jones and buried him in the boat shed on July 27th, 1973. So I thought in the autopsies, it was the other way around. Right. So there is a little confusion on that confession because when you do look at the autopsy reports, um, Marty Jones um, was actually shot twice in the head and um, Charles Cobble is actually found with a plastic bag over his head and strangled. And so I think what has happened here is that, that Henley was confused between the two when making the confession on, on which one, um, which one that, that happened to. Well, yeah. I mean, how could you keep them all straight when you've killed that many people? I mean, you can see how they might get that confused, right? Right. <laughs> um, so uh, Marty Jones and Charles Cobble, when Henley went on trial, he was actually on trial for killing the two of them and was convicted of uh, the murder of both of them. Next, we're going to talk about John Manning Sellers. So he was an, the 18-year-old son of Manny and Gina Sellers. He disappeared on July 12, 1973. His mother reported him missing um, that actual that very day. When he did not return home that evening, she actually contacted the um, sheriff's department in that area and reported him missing. His body was discovered on August 13th, 1973, buried on High Island, about two miles away from where Coral's other victims were found. From So there were five other victims found that day and him, and he was about two miles away. He was not identified until June 2nd, 1974. So the story of Sellers differs a lot from the other victims. The first part is his location. Sellers lived in Orange County, Texas, and Orange is near High Island. It's not um, 
I mean, obviously we know that Coral and Henley and Brooks are down in that area going back and forth to High Island. We also know that Coral had other victims that were from other locations. Like he does have a victim from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, but those victims were, um, Coral managed to um, get them to his apartment because they were in the Houston area. So this is a little bit different. As far as we know, Sellers was not in the Houston area. A few days before Sellers disappeared, he told his brother that someone was out to get him and would bury his body on the beach. His mother heard this from her, from his brother, and so she confronted uh, John about this. And John told her he was it was just a joke that he was just joking around with his brothers and not to worry about it. Sellers left the house in his car and he also took his Boeing rifle with him. His burned car was found on July 13th in a wooded area near Starks, Louisiana. His rifle could have been used to kill him as Sellers was out found to be killed with four large caliber gunshot wounds which because his rifle was not found in the car they couldn't compare it to find out whether or not it was it could have been the uh, murder weapon but there's always a possibility sellers was found lying on his back uh, buried in the sand in blue jeans a yellow t-shirt with uh, toadstools or mushrooms on it and a jacket attached to his jeans um, was a pair of surgical forceps and in his pocket of his jeans were eight live shotgun rounds winchester or boeing brand in his back pocket was a broken comb and cellophane with marijuana in it he had been short shot four times um sellers was not wrapped in plastic he was just there um covered with sand and there was no lime around his body or on his body his body laid in the morgue unidentified until his mother contacted the medical examiner's office and asked if her son was among coral's victims he was later identified by his dental records the clothes that he was wearing a lock of hair that he had that his mother had from the mother's day card and although the medical examiner's office did not at first list sellers as one of coral's victims his name has later been added as one of his victims so why do you think they didn't uh like connect him with coral so i mean my personal opinion here is and a I actually agree with not connecting him. I think that there are some huge differences here. Mm -hmm. um, so one, and this is what the medical examiner's office basically was looking at. He was fully clothed and Coral's victims were not. Um, two, he, his location of where he comes from doesn't, really coincide with where it seemed to be Coral's hunting grounds was. Now that, if that was the only thing I would say that doesn't, doesn't really matter because I think that they could have, could have expanded the area and been out there. Um, or I think it, he easily could have gone into Houston, but, um, the fact that he's not wrapped in plastic, the fact that there's no, uh, lime around his body, those, those things certainly tell me that. And then 
all of Coral's victims were either strangled or were killed with um, a small caliber uh, pistol, which is actually the same gun that's used to kill Coral. Mm -hmm. So, but if he's shot with his own gun, you know, it is possible that maybe somehow Coral or Henley or Brooks got the gun away from him and then used it to kill him. So there are some possibilities there. Um, it does concern me that he's telling a brother that, you know, he does think that somebody's going to kill him, that he does seem to be worried about that. I feel like there should have been a little bit more investigation on that. Lastly, his body is two miles away from them. So the way that his body was found was not because Coral or Brooks pointed, I mean, not because Henley or Brooks pointed it out and said, oh, this is one of one of our victims. It's because as they're searching the beach, they came across him. Uh -huh. So um, neither Brooks nor Henley mentions anything about Sellers uh, kidnapping or murder in any of their confession. They did not lead investigators to the body. And then the other thing that really stands out here to me is the car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so he's not hitchhiking unless something like happens to the car. And so he decides to hitchhike. But because his car is burned out, it makes you think that whatever happened to him, somebody burned the car in order to destroy mm -hmm. any chance of right. identifying that vehicle. Or any evidence that's in there. Right. Or any know? evidence that's in there. So, um, so that doesn't seem to me like something that because there the whole idea would be to get him back and sexually assault him so if in doing that you're if in doing that you're like getting him and then lighting his car on fire i just it the whole scenario has a lot of differing things here um, well, and Coral would like to spend time with his victims, right? you know, so unless there, like you said earlier, there was some kind of struggle while they were trying to kidnap him or something, there's really no similarities. There, you know? there aren't. Yeah. There, other than location, mm -hmm. you know, other than you can say the location puts him in a location where Coral was, you know, dumping his victims, right? you know, and that you have to question that. I mean, what's the likelihood that somebody else comes along to the same location where there are five other bodies and I, you know, two miles is, is certainly quite the distance, but you come along to the same location and you're like, Oh, this looks like a good area. Did you yeah, know that I mean, there were five other bodies? Probably not. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it must be that it's secluded or something, right. That yeah. it makes it kind of quote unquote, a dumping ground. You know, right. I mean, that is um, baffling, really. Well, and I've tried to do some research, and this is the difficulty of trying to do, you know, research on these things. Um, it, it's it's very difficult to call up this county and be like, so how many bodies have been discovered on High, High Island? Island yeah. And, you know, um, basically not all of this area is in the same county or the same jurisdiction. So you know, you might be able to pull those types of reports now, but trying to report, pull those types of reports for the seventies, you're not getting it. Right. Um, getting a little chuckle on the phone as you're asking, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, so this is a, so the next thing you do is try to look in the papers and I just really didn't find any other incidences of, of, a, you know, bodies being found on high Island out there. Um, 
but I just, yeah, I, I don't personally, but I did talk to a detective friend of mine who was a detective with a whole nother, not even in this state. And I kind of spelled this out to him and said, what do you think? And he thought that it could be likely that this could be one of Coral's victims. And the way that he said this is what you don't know is if there was something that happened in the attempt to kidnap him that changes the whole plan. Mm-hmm. And so if they're trying to kidnap him or if Coral's on his own trying to kidnap him and he, you know, resists and Coral manages to grab his gun, there could be that moment where you freak out and just shoot him and then you burn his car and go out and bury him. So he said, you know, it's likely one of the things that, that Sellers does match is he does resemble Coral's other victims mm-hmm. in age and type and all of that. Um, I'm not very good at reading these autopsy reports, but from what I seem to get in the autopsy reports, I don't think they, they say that there were no anal tears. So I'm thinking that maybe he wasn't sexually assaulted, mm-hmm. but again, you know, the medical examiner and that autopsy report doesn't come out and just say, there's no sign of sexual assault right. in this case. And there is a lot of decon composition and different things that you know have happened out there so you know what they can and cannot tell i don't know but um it doesn't seem like they're saying that that his hands weren't tied his feet weren't bound other things that you're seeing in victims of coral and and yeah but i mean if it is the possibility that it was just the struggle when it got away from him you wouldn't see that right because he hadn't spent time with this guy right you know so i mean it, it is always i guess that possibility yeah you would just be trying like if something happened where you had to quickly make a decision and you killed him you would just be trying to hide his body mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. So it is a possibility. I lean on the fact that I don't think that, I think that he was killed by somebody else and it's just coincidence that they're both out there in that same area. I think two miles is a very large distance between the these two um, places. Other people think differently. I think you think that there's a good possibility that this could be one of Coral's victims, but um, I mean, I think it, it was a potential victim of Coral. Yes, you know, and maybe he fought back, and there was the struggle, and he was killed in the process of whatever. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And we don't know if Coral was going to start a new dumping ground out there. I just never had the chance to. Well, and that's true. That's you know? true too. So, um, and. Uh, but you know it, it's because i mean of, how many bodies can you pile up in one place right before somebody discovers you know, something's going i mean on. honestly yeah. on a beach that's well used mm-hmm. um so the last part of this though is this is a closed case from what i can from what i can tell and what what information that i've gotten and so I don't think that there's any chance that this is going to get re-examined or re-looked at for the possibility of DNA or, you know, um, did they hang on to, you know, any of this evidence so that it could be re-looked at? And even if they did, you know, what are the chances of somebody who's buried in the wet sand of finding anything at this point in time? Right. The car, from what I can tell, was destroyed. So there's no, there's no chance there. The, the gun was never recovered. So I think that, you know, at this point, it's just, he's listed as one of Coral's victims. 
and we'll let you as our listeners decide what you think. Garcia was last seen on July 17, 1973, when his father drove him to a class at Coach's Driving School in Bel Air. Elmer Wayne Henley was also a student at the driving school, and Henley had only attended a few classes. The teacher at the school could not remember if he was there at the same time as Garcia, um, but it's probably safe to say now that he was. Yes. Um, so Homer was a 15 year old boy. He was one of the four bodies found in a wooded area by Lake Sam Rayborn. He had been strangled with a plastic strap right, wrapped tightly around his neck. When the body was recovered, it was sent to Joseph Pruitt, medical examiner of Angelina County. That's where Lake Sam Rayborn um, near where the cabin is located. The medical examiner Pruitt performed the autopsy. He performed that autopsy in this dilapidated shed behind the St. Augustine funeral home. There was no x-ray or any equipment really available to him other than, um, just the little bit that he had in his bag. And so with that, he said that um, Homer's manner of death was strangulation. Homer had actually called his parents that night before he went missing to say that he was going to spend the night at a friend's house from driving school. And um, when he did not come home, his parents reported him missing the next day. Homer struggled in school and had attended summer school. So the police, when they um, got the report of Homer uh, gone missing and the fact that he was attending summer school, really thought that he was pretty much a runaway. I mean, that was a, a basic quick thing that here's a kid who's troubled at school and, and having all sorts of issues that chances are he's running away. So as far as we know, there was little to no um, investigation. Part of the reason that we know about the little to no investigation there was because the driving school that he disappeared from, that um, person who ran that driving school was not asked about Garcia and uh, Henley until after the bodies had been found. Mm. And so that's why you get a little confusion over him not knowing whether or not Henley had attended at the same point in time. And again, this is in the 70s, so they're not keeping quite the same record keeping that maybe you'd be keeping on a computer, be more of a sign in and a sign out type thing. Um, and so that's that kind of explains why you don't get some of the answers. So as um, Henley was about to go on trial for uh, Homer's murder, the uh, medical examiner in Houston decided to perform another autopsy on, um, on Homer to decide, you know, just to kind of confirm some things. Um, and when the next autopsy was performed, x-ray was done, and it showed that he had two 22 
caliber uh, bullets in him, one in his head and one in his chest. So the manner of death with that was actually then changed to um, the gunshot ones. Well, it's possible he was strangled too. Well, and I mean, I may not kill him, but well, and I think, you know, the good possibility here is that, you know, they had the bag around his head, they strangled him and he, they may have, he may have not been quite dead. And so then they may have shot him at that point, or it may have been just overkill. Yeah. You know, like, let's make sure that he's, he's passed. So, um, it just, this does go back to some of what we talked about in the trials about the difficulty of this case, identifying these victims, trying to get these autopsies reformed, is because you had so many different counties involved. And when you look at this small county um, up there where they're performing these autopsies in this dilapidated shed behind the funeral home, it gives you kind of an idea of how, how difficult things were. Um, yeah, I mean, they just didn't have the same resources they that, yeah. you know, the big city is going to have. So, so, and sadly, probably the better choice would have been to transfer all bodies at that point to Houston. Sure. Um, but it does kind of explain to you a little bit of why we also get some of the misidentifications and stuff that happened here too, is this, this was overwhelming all of these areas. Mm-hmm. So. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, You can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.